All right, good evening. Uh, we are continuing our study of the Baptist Catechism. Um, I know we have a couple of visitors here. Uh, just want to be clear, ordinarily on Sunday mornings, I preach through uh, books of the Bible or specific passages of Scripture. Uh, but in the evenings, whenever we have service, we do what's called a catechism, uh, which just is a series of questions and answers to help uh, teach the faith. Um, so it's very uh, geared towards doctrinal study. Um, and I need to be clear, we, we don't believe that the catechism is scripture, but we believe that the catechism is a great summary of the teachings of scripture. And so I won't preach from the catechism. I will preach from the scriptures uh, in line with what the catechism is aiming to teach us. So I just wanted to be very clear about that. Um, but yeah, I'll be teaching question number nine this evening in the Baptist catechism. Um, it's a very basic question, but it is worthwhile to think on. And our question this evening is this, are there more gods than one? As I've already said, this is a very basic question, right? Uh, me and Stephen joke. Are there more gods than one? No. All right, let's pray. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, are there more gods than one? No, the answer is no. Sorry, I'm getting confused without my notes. Uh, anyway, there is only one God. <laughs> this is Christianity 101, right? This, the, the most fundamental tenet of our religion is that God exists and that there is only one God. We are monotheists. Um, that word means that we believe that there is only one God. Mono means one. Theism is the belief in God. So we believe in one God. It's not, uh, as some of the old ancient pagans believed, it's not that we believe in one specific God among many gods, that there's a lot to choose from, but we've chosen this one. Rather, we believe that there is actually only one God, and anyone who worships anything or anyone other than that one God is worshiping an idol or a false god. God is not one among many. God alone is God. Now, it may seem silly to some of you uh, uh, that, that we should take the time to consider this truth because it's so basic, and I, I understand that. Uh, but I, I'll tell you a story that reveals wh why we still need to review such a basic truth. Um, I was having lunch a few weeks ago with a man. He goes to a church around here, and he's actually fairly involved in that church. Uh, he's not an officer of the church, but he's something of a lay leader. And during lunch, we began to talk about theology, right? Shocker. If you're around me for more than 20 minutes, that's probably what we're going to talk about. Um, and a question that the man asked me in our discussion was this, or something like this. He said, the Bible tells us to only worship God, but it also mentions other gods. So are there other gods? Like, God is the most powerful, but there are lesser gods that God created. I admit that I was shocked. Um, I'm not trying to mock anyone, but I was shocked that someone wouldn't know how to interpret the scriptures at those places where the Bible talks about other gods. Um, but that's not a question to make fun of. That is a question to answer, right? We don't mock questions. We answer them. Uh, and there may be people among us, if, if he was willing to ask that question, I thought maybe there are people among us who have questions like that, but maybe are afraid to ask. Um, so this very basic catechism question is worth our study. Uh, more than that, as we consider that there is only one God, our hearts should be warmed to worship him and serve him alone, because he alone is God. So even if you already know every single thing that I'm going to say this evening, it's edifying for you to be reminded that God alone is God. So with that said, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into our question and answer for this evening. And may God bless us as we study his word. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this Lord's Day that we've enjoyed. And now as we near the end of it, we've assembled to meet you once again at your word. 
And so we ask that you would meet with us, teach us, reveal yourself to us, and sanctify us by your word and spirit working mightily in us. Open our hearts to receive your word this evening, and let us leave here declaring boldly, there is only one God, and he is my God. Work in us for your glory and our good. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, our question for this evening. I ask that you would read the answer with me. Uh, this is how I catechize my daughter. So this is how we're going to do it. Question. Are there more gods than one? Answer. There is but one only, the living and true God. Let's do that one more time. Question. Are there more gods than one? Answer. There is but one only, the living and true God. Very good. Normally I would clap my hands and say yay for my daughter, but we're not going to do that this evening because you're adults. Um, so how many gods are there? Well, as we've already said, there is but one only, one only. The scriptures declare this truth in more places than I care to read to you this evening, just to be completely honest. It is declared all over the Bible that our God is the only God, that there is but one only. But I will read a few portions of scripture that declare this glorious truth. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, may be the most famous verse that declares that God alone is God. And here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or Yahweh, God's proper name, that's what all capital Lord is. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. This was the most basic doctrinal recitation in Judaism. It was and is still recited daily among the Jews. That's called the Shema. Shema is Hebrew for hear. Hear, O Israel. It's called the Shema. And it is an affirmation among uh, maybe a couple of other things implied, but at the most basic level, it is an affirmation that God is one, that there is only one of him, and Yahweh is his name. The God who chose Israel, what God are we talking about when we say our God is the only God? It's the God who chose Israel and saved them out of Egypt, that God. The God who inspired the scriptures, this God, the one who made a covenant with Abraham, that God is one. There is only one Yahweh. Now, the scriptures actually presuppose that God is the only God before it declares it explicitly. Maybe you've never considered this. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. It's a presupposition. God alone is in the beginning. No one else is ever mentioned as being in the beginning with God. And you say, well, the word was with God. Yes, and the word was God, as John 1, 1 says. So only God is there in the beginning. Everything that exists, exists because he spoke it into being. And again, there is no one there with him. This is the foundational presupposition of the Bible. God is the creator, and he alone is the only God. Let me read you some more text. Let me read you some more text on this subject. Uh, some of my favorites um, that declare that there is only one God. And I'll make some brief comments on them. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. By the way, read Isaiah 42 through 48, I believe, and it's just one after another. There is none like me. Look at me. Look at God. There are none like me. Who, who will you compare me to? Beautiful, beautiful chapters of Scripture. But Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last Besides me, there is no God. God says he's the beginning and the end. 
He was there before anything or anyone, and he will always be the first and the last. And so he can confidently declare that besides him, there simply is no God. He would know. A second text to consider is Deuteronomy 4.35. This is awesome. Read Deuteronomy 4 uh, when, when you get home this evening. But Deuteronomy 4.35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Now here Moses is speaking to the Israelites. To you it was shown, Moses says. To you Israelites it was shown. He's telling the Israelites that God's mighty work of rescuing them from slavery to Egypt was to show them that Yahweh is God and that there is no other God. Consider this. Maybe you've never thought about the purpose of the plagues in Israel or in Egypt. When God rescued Israel from Egypt, it was to show his power and sovereign rule over all as God. You see, the Egyptians had their false gods. They had their idols, but God triumphed over them when he freed Israel. They had gods that ruled the Nile. God turned the Nile to blood. They had gods over various aspects of nature, and God made the frogs, locusts, and flies to swarm. They had gods for healing. God gave them boils that were incurable. They had a sun god. God turned the sun off. They had gods that would protect them. God killed the firstborn in every house because Pharaoh wouldn't let his people go. You see the point he's making? In every plague, God is saying, I alone am God. Your gods can do nothing for you. His work of redemption in Israel is proof that he alone is God. The God he actually says, has there ever been another God that went into another nation and took a people away from them? You see, back, back then, uh, people thought that there were gods over various regions in the world. So you may worship your God in this country, but around here, this God or these handful of gods run things in this country, and your God has no power here. Well, what does Yahweh do? He goes into Egypt, the most powerful nation at the time, and just takes people out from there, from there by destroying their country, essentially. What's he saying? Oh, I'm not God over a region. I'm God over everything. Beautiful stuff here. Beautiful stuff. God sent a message to anyone who was paying attention that he alone is God and that he is God over all. Read Deuteronomy 4 when you get home. Uh, another text, Isaiah 44, 8 says, God speaking, he says, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This one makes me laugh a little bit. right? Sometimes I feel like uh, the, the Lord is uh, being a, a bit funny sometimes. Maybe funny is not the right word, but I think you understand what I mean in a moment. God is asking Israel if there is any other God besides him. Again, is there a God besides me? And what do we know about God? He knows everything. He's not asking this question to try to get information. So the verse, I think the logic of it goes something like this. Hey, Israel, do you know of any other gods besides me? Because I don't, and I know everything. Do you know something that I don't know? Didn't think so. I am the only God. I love that. And our God says, there is no rock. That is, there is no other rock but him. So again, since he knows of no other God, there can be no other God, for he knows all things. Brothers and sisters, there is but one only. God alone is God. So consider then how you ought to view him as unique. There is only one of him. There is only one who made you. There is only one who gives you everything that you have. You owe this one God everything and him alone. There is no other. 
But this naturally brings up a question, right? God being the only God. It naturally brings up a question to those who are paying attention. And it's the question of the man that I mentioned in the introduction. What are the other gods mentioned in the Bible? Right? How are we to understand those references? If there is only one God, why does Scripture mention other gods? Um, you know, there are actually three kinds of gods that are mentioned in the Bible besides God. Some of you maybe aren't familiar enough with your Old Testament to know this, so I'm going to teach you some stuff. Um, so I'm going I'm to go through all three of these and explain why the Bible refers to these three categories as gods. First, angels are sometimes referred to as gods. Psalm chapter 97, verse 7 says, Worship him, all you gods. Referring to, to God. Worship God, all you gods. And when that verse is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, the apostle quotes it as this, Let all God's angels worship him. That is referring to angels worshiping Jesus. Let all God's angels worship him. So the apostle tells us that the gods mentioned in Psalm 97 are angels being commanded to worship the Lord Jesus because he is God. So then we conclude naturally that angels are referred to as gods in the Bible, at least in a couple of spots. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because compared to us, they are like gods. Psalm chapter 8 tells us, or rather the 8th Psalm tells us that human beings are, quote, a little lower than the heavenly beings. What does that mean? Well, they're a little higher than us. Compared to us, they are as gods. Angels are higher than us. Elect angels, that, is the, that are the angels who, who don't sin, who did not rebel against God. Uh, elect angels are sinless. They perfectly obey the Lord. Angels are much, much more powerful than we are. You remember the one angel, I believe it's in the book of Isaiah, that's mentioned he killed 135,000 men in one evening. Right? Angels are much more powerful than men. They know more than we do. They're wiser than we are. They are, in many regards, greater. And so compared to us, they are, quote, gods. But notice this also in Psalm 97, verse 7. They're told to worship God. Worship God. And also Psalm 103, verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels. So angels are not gods like God is God. They are not to receive worship, not, not even close. They are creatures of God who worship God. And Scripture figuratively calls them gods because of their greatness in the created order. They are only lesser to God. A second thing. Um, the Bible sometimes calls civil magistrates gods. This one, this one confuses people. Psalm 82. Psalm 82 verse 1 says this. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, Mormons love this verse, by the way, because they believe that the God of this world is one God among a literal infinite number of gods. Um, talk to me more about Mormonism later if you want to know, but their, their, their religion functionally has no God because of a logical fallacy called infinite regression. Uh, very good times. Uh, anyway, um, but some people will read that verse. God takes his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds his judgment. And, and people will say that God must be one God among many. And that's absolutely incorrect. Because if you keep reading and you're paying attention, you'll see that these gods are actually human rulers. In verse 2, just the very next verse, God questions them and says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Read the scriptures and, and, and see who, who judges 
who judges unjustly and shows partiality to the wicked? Wicked men all over the Bible. So this is a human ruler ruling unjustly. And in the next verse, God exhorts them, do justice, rule justly. So again, he's calling them to repent. And then in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 82, God reminds them of their humanity. He says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So these, quote, gods will die like men. They will fall like other princes. What are princes? What's well, a Bible way of referring to a human ruler? So, again, these are civil magistrates. These are people in governmental authority. So why then does God call them gods in this passage? Well, he does so because judges and civil magistrates are put into power by God to represent him in the world. They are meant to, though often they do not. Their purpose is to represent the justice of God. Right? We read this in Romans chapter 13. There, the apostle Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Later, Paul writes of the civil magistrate, for he is God's servant for your good. So that's the purpose of governing authorities. They exist under God to execute justice according to God's standards. So then, figuratively speaking, they are gods over common people. They're supposed to represent God, and they have, if you'll permit me to use this language, they have godlike authority to execute justice on behalf of God. And so the scriptures rightfully refer to them as gods in a couple of places. A third group that the Bible refers to as gods are the false gods of the nations. This is the one that we all are pretty familiar with. Right, this is mentioned all over the Bible, uh, but one specific example just to prove the point is 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 25, referring to uh, Israel. But they broke faith with the God of their fathers and whored after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. The gods of the peoples. Again, so the people worshipped what the Bible call, calls gods. And the answer for this is just very simple. Uh, they're called gods because people treat them as such. Right? So this, is, this, isn't, this isn't rocket science. Um, uh, th they aren't actually gods, but they're called gods by the heathen. And so scripture is simply recognizing how these false gods are treated for the sake of simple communication. The gods of the nations aren't gods, but the nations treat them like gods and worship them. Therefore, they are rightly called the gods of those nations. Now, let me say a, a few more things about the false gods of the world before we um, get back into the catechism. First, the scriptures say that false gods can actually be demons. And this, this, this usually shocks people. Let's not, for, let's not try to suck the supernatural out of our religion, shall we? Right? We do believe that on the third day, a man, the God-man, God incarnate, rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven a few weeks later. Let's not try to anti-supernatural our religion. It is a supernatural religion. False gods can actually be demons. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 17 says this. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. Right? So Moses says that the Israelites in their idolatry and forsaking God were actually making sacrifices to demons. They were worshiping demons, not a false god, but a demon. 
The Apostle Paul actually says something almost exactly the same in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Paul says this, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul tells us the same exact thing that Moses says. Pagans worship demons, not false gods. Or at the minimum, the Greek pagans are worshiping demons and not false gods. So then we must conclude that behind at least some, if not all, false gods, there are actually demons being worshipped. Can you see already that this is really serious business whenever people dabble in false religion? I'm convinced that there is a demon that likes to be called Allah. There are probably demons that like to go by some of God's names. Why do you say that? The Jehovah's Witnesses like to talk about Jesus, and they like to use the, the name Jehovah, which is just a bad rendering of Yahweh. It's God's name. There's probably a demon that likes to be called Jehovah. There are demons that like to go by the name of Jesus and Heavenly Father. That's Mormonism. There's probably multiple demons like to go by the name of Jesus when you consider how many Christian cults that there are. There are again, there are thousands of demons being worshipped daily in the world in all the false religion that surrounds us. Brothers and sisters, I, I say that to say this by way of early application here. Stay away from false religion. Stay, stay away from it. I say to you what Paul said to the Corinthians. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Don't dabble in other religions. Don't dabble in new age junk. Stay far away from it. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not telling you not to learn about it. You should learn about it for the sake of evangelism. There's actually a really good podcast I recommend you to listen to. It's called Cultish. Yeah, it's a very apt name. Very good stuff. Or Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cults. Right? Excellent resources. Learn about false religions for the sake of reaching people in those false religions, but do not adopt their practices or take in their gods. It is very dangerous stuff. You must cling tightly to the Lord Jesus Christ and refuse to be influenced by such things. You are dabbling with demons if you do so. A second thing, and this may sound harsh, but I believe it's biblical. This, this is not something that you would say in 2022, but we're Christians. This is a counterculture. We do not show any respect for other gods. If you're a Christian, you should, show, you should show absolutely no respect for other gods or false religion. Now, I want to be, I, I I be clear. We respect those who may worship false gods. We must treat them with common love for our neighbors we must treat them as our fellow image bearer of God and seek to win them to Christ, but we do not respect their religion. We do not. We do not show reverence for things opposed to the only God. We do not bow and we do not show any outward or inward respect for any so-called God except for the living God. False religion is a cancer and God hates it and we must hate false religion too. No God but God deserves an ounce of your respect. Don't give to demons. Don't give to empty things what only belongs to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul says this. For although there may be so-called gods, I like that. For though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, he puts in quotations, and many, quote, lords, 
Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. As our catechism says, there is but one only. Let's finish digging through our catechism answer. It says, there is but one only, the living God. The living God. Now, why is God called the living God? Well, this denotes some things about God. Now, let's go through them briefly. First, this biblical title for God, the living God, reminds us that he has life in and of himself, does it not? He is the living God. He subsists in and of himself. God does not exist. To exist means you came into being. No, God does not exist. He subsists. He just is. He is. He has life in himself. He is not dependent upon anyone. He has always been. He does not receive what he is from any but himself. He has life in himself. He is the living God. He is pure being. He is life. He is, as Exodus 3.14 says, I am. God is the living God. Second, this title reminds us that as the living God, he gives life to all things. As Paul says at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, in him, that is in God, we live and move and have our being. We live in him. Anything that has life has it because the living God granted it. The living God granted life. He is the creator. So the living God reminds us he is the life giver. He is the creator. And all creatures then owe everything to the living God who gave them their being. Third, this title, Living God, reminds us that he gives eternal life to those who come to him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is eternally the living God has the power to grant eternal life. And so, I want to encourage you, Christian, and if you're not a believer, I want to encourage you, we are right to trust in the living God for our salvation, for he is the only one who can give it. He's the only one who can give life that never ends. And he promises salvation to all who approach him through the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And fourth and lastly, he is the living God as opposed to dead idols. He is actually alive. As we read in Psalm 115, idols can do nothing. They can't harm. Even the demons can do nothing apart from God's sovereign will and permission. Our God is alive. He actually does things. He actually rules and reigns over all. He really is. Everything else is a dead God. Everything else is a vain imagining that can do nothing. As Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 7 says, there is no breath in them. That is, there is no breath in idols. There is no breath in false gods. There is no life in them. There is only life in the living God. And finally, our catechism says, there is but one only, the living and true God. My point here is much shorter. God is true, unlike all false gods. That's the purpose of the true God, his title. He's the only true God. Again, let me read Jeremiah 51, verses 17 and 18. There we read, every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, 
a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The scriptures tell us every other so-called God is a worthless delusion. It is a lying idol. Every other so-called God is not true. Rather, they are a delusion that cannot save. Brothers and sisters, our God is the truth itself. We dare not forsake him and go after a lie. Is a lie worthy of your allegiance? Perish the thought. Can a lie save you? Absolutely not. Is a lie worthy of your highest affections? Absolutely not. But the true God is. Because he is the truth. Because he can do all the things that he says. Because he alone is. He is glorious and worthy of your all. Now as I near the close of this sermon, let me exhort you in light of these truths. Don't follow after false gods. Don't follow after false gods. False gods are still a threat to us. Idols still exist today. Many of you can see where I'm going with this, but just receive the word of God anyway. We may not bow down to wood and stone and gold carvings. We're far too sophisticated for that nowadays. Yeah, right. We still have idols. Now again, we we may not bow down to statues. We may not practice a literal false religion, but we may still bow down to other things in our hearts and prize them over the one true and living God. Remember the first commandment. Pastor Steve reads to us every Sunday morning. You shall have no other gods before me. More literally, it says, you shall have no other gods before my face. And where is the face of God? Everywhere. He is He is omnipresent. What is he saying? You are to have no God but me. No God but me. We are so often tempted to go after other things as if they were gods. Money. You say we don't bow down to statues of gold, but people literally bow down in their hearts to gold. We pursue money, status, homes, the desire for future glory for our children. Pleasure, comfort, ease of life, a good reputation among the ungodly. Let me say that one again. A good reputation among the ungodly is often an idol for many professing Christians. Having our own way is an idol. The desire for power, the desire to have sovereign control over our own lives. Listen, we can turn anything into a false god if we really set our minds to it. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm saying you have that in you. I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's a very famous quote from John Calvin. He said, the human heart is perpetually an idol factory. That's what we do. We take anything and turn it into a false god. And we do so when we place our pursuit of that thing, even a good thing. We turn it into a god. We turn it into an idol when we put our pursuit and service of that thing above our pursuit and service of the living and true God. As the Apostle John says at the end of his letter, 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Be on the lookout for idols in your life and in your heart. They can creep up and before you know it, you are functionally no different from the Israelites who knew God but had sold him out to whore after Baal. 
And you say, well, how do I know if something's become a God in my life? I'll tell you some advice that a pastor gave me one time. He said this, you want to identify what's actually running your life and what you're actually pursuing above all other things? Where does your mind float to when you're driving down the road? When you're sitting in a chair and there's nothing that you're doing, where does your mind immediately drift? And that doesn't mean that we can't have other concerns, but what occupies, what dominates our thoughts daily? That is a great test of what you're actually pursuing in your life. And you need to ask yourself, am I pursuing a false God or am I pursuing the living God? Am I pursuing things that are good out of obedience to God? Or am I pursuing lesser things that have come to dominate my life and take God's place? Little children, little children, keep yourself from idols. So then, brothers and sisters, since there is only one living and true God, offer yourself to him daily. As Paul says in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Make your daily sacrifice of praise to the only God. Devote yourself to him anew each day. Serve him. Be faithful to him. Worship him. Pursue him. Be faithful to him and him alone. This is right and proper, is it not? He alone is God. This is your duty as a creature who was created to worship him and know him. And this is his due as God. He deserves our undivided allegiance. He owns us, as I'd like to remind us from time to time. He owns us by rights of creation since he has made us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he owns you by rights of redemption since he gave his son over to divine justice for us. And this is our desire, isn't it? To be faithful to the only God. After all, this God has given us life through our Savior, Jesus Christ. He alone, this God alone, has loved you with steadfast love. He alone has redeemed you from sin and death through the death of Christ. He alone has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He alone has had mercy upon you. So may God help each of us to be faithful to him, the only living and true God. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you We thank you for these truths. We thank you for the reminder that we've received from your word that you are God over all, that you are the only living and true God. I pray that you would seal this to our hearts this evening. Let us walk out of here saying, there is only one and he is mine by grace and I am his because he's had mercy upon me. God, help us to be singularly devoted to you in all things in our lives that we might forsake all false gods, all idols that have crept up into our heart and that we might go after you and you alone with everything that we have. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.